welcome. Uh, my name is Derek Matthews. Let me let me just jump into a quick word of prayer, and uh, then we're going to jump in. The, the way the flow of the morning is going to go is uh, I'm going to teach the first kind of third of it. We're going to have a break. Uh, then Sean is going to teach the next third of it, and then we're going to have a break. And then Mark's going to teach the last third of it, and then we're, we're going to have a very long break and hopefully see each other sometime in the future, but then we'll, we'll be done. So, um, Lord, we uh, thank you for this day. We thank you for... Um, just the beautiful day that it is outside, and, and Father, that uh, Ephesians 1 says that every spiritual blessing comes from you in Christ Jesus, and so Father, we thank you first and foremost for the gift that you have given us in Christ. Um, Father, his death, his resurrection, that he died in my place, and he rose uh, so that I might have life. And Father, that's true of every single person that places their trust in him. So, Lord, I just pray that you would be with us this morning, uh, that, Father, you would open our hearts, open our minds, uh, Father, that regardless of where we're at on this spectrum, uh, kind of questioning this thing about assurance of salvation, whether we feel very sure of it or just want to know how to be sharpened to share it with others, uh, Father, I do pray uh, that we would all leave here encouraged by your word, encouraged by your spirit, and encouraged by the community of those around us. So, Lord, we do love you, and we ask these things through your spirit and in your son's name amen amen uh, well like i said my name is derek matthews uh, i am a student right now at dallas theological seminary actually i am skipping class right now uh to be here uh and so once my time is over i'm gonna scoot on down south uh to uh, be with <laughs> the class that's starting 30 minutes ago so um but uh but for me um man uh, this topic uh, wasn't just one that we just picked haphazardly, uh, but was rather something that uh, is very near and dear to my own heart. Uh, I grew up in a very uh, strict religious tradition uh, that had a lot of kind of works-based salvation, uh, sometimes implied, sometimes explicitly said that this is how you kind of earn your way uh, to God. And so if you can earn your way to God, then it also is implied that you could lose your way from God. And so a lot of my story centers around wrestling with this question. Um, different times in my life, whenever I felt, uh, just felt distant from God. Man, I went to camps and then I went to denials, but kind of in the in-between time, I felt distant, I felt confused. Uh, I, I didn't feel that loving feeling anymore with God, and I kind of felt like maybe He didn't feel that way about me anymore. Uh, other times it was because of sin. Hey, there are certain things in my life that I just go, hey, I thought this was killed when I came to have a saving relationship with Christ, and it's not now. It's still here. It's still present. And so did that thing that happened at that camp when I said that prayer really do anything for me? Uh, I wrestled with this question a lot uh, throughout my life. And so I'm sure that many of you in here are wrestling with that question as well, or wrestling with how do I present it to someone else, or just how do I get sharpened in this? Uh, I remember one time... Uh, my church back home had this uh, gym that you could go to, and you could either sign up as a member. If you were a member of church, you had free access to it. But if you weren't a member, all you had to do was fill out this little bitty card uh, that said simple questions like your name, uh, your birthday, and then on a scale of 1 to 10, how sure are you of your salvation? Uh, so just little easy questions in order to use their gym. And uh, I remember every single time uh, I went to that gym, 
uh, I would do my name. That was easy. My birthday, and I got that. Salvation, here you go. You know, I just give it back to them. Um, because that question was weird for me. Uh, even though I came to Christ uh, whenever I was in seventh grade, that question of, hey, how sure are you was just weird for me. And I didn't want to answer that because it really was the flavor of the week. If I felt good about it, I would, I would you know, circle a nine, a ten. If I, didn't, if I felt like I had fallen a lot or sinned or just felt distant from God, I would circle a three or four. Uh, so I just ended up in my mind circling those things but not wanting to admit it, and so I just kind of gave it back to them. And so before we kind of jump into this, I just want you to take a moment and think about that question right here. On a scale of 1 to 10, how sure are you of your salvation? Just kind of have that in your mind right now. And as you do so, Mark's going to be handing out um, some case studies that we're going to take our time, my time this morning, uh, walking through. So, But just think about that question. How sure are you on a scale of 1 to 10 of your salvation? Well, like I said, some of you have come into here saying, hey, I, I, I'm, I'm an 8, I'm a 7, maybe I'm a 9. Some of you have come in here today going, no, I'm a 10, I got this. I just want to know how to share this with others, how to sharpen others. Some of you are used to be a 10 and now are questioning because there's someone close in your life that um, you thought was a 10. Uh, but then now is saying, hey, I just, I'm not really following this Christianity thing anymore. And now you're kind of confused. Uh, there's some of you in here that going, I, I don't even know if I'm on the scale. Um, I'm coming in here because this whole question of salvation is just something I've been personally wrestling with. And so wherever you're at on this spectrum, 1 to 10, our hope for us this morning is that you would leave here knowing the good news of Jesus Christ and then being assured of that salvation. And then on top of that, having that ability, the equipping ability to share that with others, but then also being able to walk in such a way that you can walk in a freedom and a confidence being assured, because God wants you to be assured. And so the way we're going to do that, we're going to be in a lot of different texts this morning. As we were preparing for this, we were blown away, as we've wrestled with this ourselves in the past, but as we just really honed in on this, blown away about how much the scriptures actually talk about this. It's a lot. So we're not just going to be in one passage, though if you wanted a key passage for this, it's going to be in Romans 8. Uh, Romans 8.30, kind of that whole section. Uh, But we, in our time together, we're all going to be probably touching on that passage because it is such a key moment. Uh, In fact, all of Romans 8 is worth committing uh, to your memory and wrestling through what Paul is saying. It's some of the most beautiful things he says. Uh, But in our time right now, we're going to do something uh, in terms of doing four case studies. Uh, Four case studies, and that's the sheet that Mark just handed out to you. And so what we did is we sat down, and, and every single time someone wants to be a member at Watermark, they had to fill out this form, and one of the questions on that form is, on a scale of 1 to 10, how sure are you of your salvation? And if you don't put 10, you get a follow-up question, hey, why'd you put a 9? Why'd you put an 8? Why'd you put a 7? Why'd you leave that blank? And every single time it's it tends to fall into these similar categories. And so we took those categories that we hear all the time and kind of created these four different case studies. And so as we go through these four different case studies, I want you to be thinking about these three questions. For each case study, and if this is one of your names, 
This is not you. This was hypothetical. Me in front of a computer screen. Janet, Daniel, Sarah, Jim. Um, but if that's you, that was not purposeful. Uh, but maybe the sovereignty of God has brought you into this moment today. And who knows? As we read through each one of these, I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to ask you, hey, what do you think is the underlining assumption for this person? What's driving this idea that they have that they're not a 10, they're a 9, they're an 8, they're a 7? What's the attitude that's either leading to the assumption or is created by the assumption? And so that might be nervousness, that might be fear, that might be whatever it is. If this was true, if this assumption was true, what would that create in that individual? And then lastly, we're going to look at the answer. And every single time we open up the answer, it's going to be directly from the Word of God. So all of this this morning is not me. It's not Watermark. It's not Dallas Theological Seminary. This is God's inspired spoken word to us that he has revealed because God is good. And God desires us to know him. And even though, according to Romans 1, we are all held accountable because God has shown himself through the world and through creation, it so pleased God that he wanted to, for us to know him so much that he inspired over the course of 1,500 years his word so that today in 2016 we could open it and have it open us. And so that's what we're going to be doing this morning uh, in, in our upfront time right now. And so let me read to you the first conversation. And then I want you to be thinking, what are the assumptions, what's the attitude, and what's the answer? So first up is this. Janet, any Janets in here? Okay, good. Um, Janet is wanting to be a member at Watermark. When she came to the question, how certain are you of your salvation, she answered nine out of ten. When a staff member followed up with her and asked why she answered with a nine, she said, well, I grew up in a church and prayed to receive Christ when I was a kid. I believe Jesus and everything he did for me, but the truth is, I'm not God, so how can I really know 100%? We get this all the time. And so let me ask you, what do you think is the underlining assumption from Janet? What's driving her to say these things? Yeah, so ignorance would be a good one. Yeah, absolutely. What else? Yeah, that's great. So ignorance, going through the motions. Hey, my friend maybe walked up forward. I accepted Christ when I was a kid. Great. Anything else? It could be a works-based mentality that she kind of thinks, hey, I-, I did this thing when I was a kid, but how can I be 100% sure there's that maybe my sin, he hasn't covered me fully? Yeah, absolutely. Anything else? Uncertainty of faithfulness of God. Man, that's a good one. That's a real good one. Yeah, I would say all of those are right. As I read this and as we talk to individuals like this, we see this underlining assumption that basically just says, hey, I'm not God. So how can I know? That's just kind of the, the overarching assumption. And there's a certain attitude that's driving this. And I'm just going to give it to you because it's kind of unique, but it's an avoidance of arrogance. I 
I actually had a conversation uh, with a girl. It was my first one that I had to uh, call up. So, so we have a Believe team. And this Believe team, anytime uh, uh, one of these things that comes up and it's a 9 out of 10, we call them up and say, hey, wh- why was it a 9? And this was actually what she said. This was verbatim what she said. And as I, as I talked to her, I began to realize that she was trying to avoid this arrogant idea. Hey, hey I'm not God. I can't, I'm not God. And so how can I really know 100%? And so what's interesting is she's saying the same thing that Shakespeare's Hamlet said. So I don't know if you are a Shakespearean, love Shakespeare, read it this morning, meditated on his sonnets, uh, but Shakespeare is a brilliant individual as he's unpacking the nature of the human psyche. And so Hamlet's famous speech, anyone know it? Just the, the main line? To be or not to be. Well done. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous for- fortune or to, I'm going to mess it up, slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing them in, men, in them to die or to sleep no more. Hamlet is wrestling with whether or not he's going to commit suicide. He's wrestling with the idea of to be or not to be. Do I live or do I die? And he wrestles with this idea in this beautiful monologue, and, but he ultimately decides to live because of this. He says, but there's a dread of something after death, an undiscovered country from whose born no traveler has returned. It puzzles the will, and it makes us rather bear the ills we have than to fly out to others we know not of. And thus my conscience makes me a coward. And so what he's saying in this moment is this, look, do I live? Do I die? And the thing that stops him from doing anything is this fear of the unknown. He goes, look, I know my troubles here, but I don't know what troubles await me afterwards. And so let me be very clear, not promoting suicide. But what he is saying in this moment is this. There is a wrestling of what is happening next. He calls death a, a place in which no traveler has ever returned. And so because of that, it it paralyzes him in the present and makes him frightened for the future. And so Hamlet's assumption is, I cannot know what happens after death because no one has returned from death to tell me what happens after death. That is not the Christian hope. The Christian hope says this, somebody did die and somebody did return from death to share with us, yes, what happens after death but also how to live life to the fullest. That is the Christian hope, that Jesus did literally physically die and then literally physically rose. And if he is the only one who has died, didn't say dead, we listen to him, okay? If you die, don't say dead. You have more validity in the conversation of how life is supposed to be lived and how death is supposed supposed to operate than anyone else. And so what paralyzed Hamlet was I don't know what's next. And what's paralyzing this girl is that, look, I just, I can't know what's next. And I'm going to say nine because I'm not God and I don't know what's going to happen next. And so I don't really fully understand this whole big thing called salvation. And so I'm just going to avoid this idea of arrogance. But the truth is God desires you to know 100%. And so that's our answer. And it's found in 1 John. 1 John 5.11. That says John. 1 John 5.11 through 13. 
that God desires you to know 100%. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 John 5, 11 through 13. This is a passage you want to commit to memory. I was sitting with the kid a couple months back at a camp, and he was wrestling with this question. And I was thinking in my head, it's 1 John something, it's 1 John something, it's 1 John. I think it's in the chapter 5. I think it's in chapter 5. And as he's talking, I'm flipping through my Bible. She's going, yeah, 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 yeah. Tell me more about that. And I was just trying to find it. This is the verse you want to commit to memory as individuals are saying, hey, I just don't know. I don't know if I can know 100%. So let me read it to you. 1 John 5, 11 through 13 says this. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Watch this. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. And so somebody right now, put that into your own words. What did did John just tell us? If you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. Exactly. It, it couldn't get more clear than that. If, if you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. What happens if you don't believe in Jesus? You don't have eternal life. Who's he writing this to? Those who already believe. The gospel is for, yes, unbelievers, but it's for believers, the assurance of salvation, he's writing to those who already believe in Jesus Christ. Why is he writing? Look at the end of verse 13. Why is he writing? So that you may know. I want you to know. I want you to know 100%. I don't want you to have any guesswork in this. I don't want you to be at a nine. I don't want you to be at an eight. There's an insecurity, there's fear, there's anxiety that comes up with that. It is not a hopeful message to say, hey, this is Jesus Christ. He died for your sins and rose from the grave. And if you, have play, if you place your hope in him for eternity, you will have eternal life. Maybe. It's not hopeful. And that's why John writes here, I want you to know if this, then this, if this, then this. He could not be more clearer. If you have the Son, you have life. If you do not have the Son, you do not have life. I'm writing these things to you who already believe that you might know, that you might be assured. And so with her saying, hey, I just don't want to be, I'm not God, I want to avoid this arrogance, it's not an issue of whether or not you're God or not. It's an issue of whether or not you trust God or not. It's not an issue of whether or not you're God, it's an issue of whether or not you trust Him and trust what He has done, that His Son did die did raise from the grave and has come back to share. This is how life is lived and this is how eternity is grasped. Do you trust me? That's the question. And that's our first conversation. Let me read the second conversation to you. Daniel was invited to a church camp when he was in seventh grade. He had a blast and never experienced anything like it. Throughout the week, He heard more and more about Jesus and what he did on the cross. At the end of the camp, Daniel had placed his trust in Christ. After the camp was over, Daniel's relationship with the Lord went up and down over the years. At camps, Daniel felt so close to the Lord, but then felt distant most of the other time. 
When Daniel does not feel close to the Lord, he quickly starts to wonder whether or not he is still saved or whether or not he ever was. So question, you're sitting with Daniel. He's just kind of explained this to you. What do you believe is the underlining assumption in Daniel's understanding of salvation? Exactly. You have to feel saved to be saved. And so the way I put it was your salvation is based on feelings. Um, this, this is a big one for me, honestly. Um, I'm, a, I'm a high thinker that's really emotional. Um, I don't understand how that always works. But I cried a couple weeks ago when I was thinking about a scene from Inside Out. Okay? Not watching the movie. Driving my car, thinking of a scene. Just going, man, the invisible, you know, the, the whatever, the, uh, the invisible... What, what was that thing? It was a uh, imaginary friend. I don't want to ruin anything, but when he did that thing, that was Jesus. You know, like, I'm an emotional guy. And so it's easy for me to let my feelings, emotions guide my heart. And so I was going through a rough season, and this came up. I felt so distant from God. And I felt if I feel distant from God, that must be reality. God must be distant from me. And someone gave me this devotional. It's, it's from a book called Streams in a Desert. And it's, it's a devotional called Seemings and Feelings. This book, Streams in a Desert, was written by this woman. It was a compilation of quotes and sayings and things that she put together uh, while either herself or her husband was going through cancer. I mean, it was her way of just thinking and dwelling on what is true in a time that a lot of things are kind of pulling her opposite directions. So she said this, seemings and feelings are often a substitute for faith. Feelings are often a substitute for faith. Pleasure, emotions, and deep satisfying experience are in fact a part of the Christian life, but they're not all of it. Trials, conflicts, battles, and testings lie along the way and are not to be counted as misfortunes but rather as a part of our necessary discipline. In all these varying experience, we are to reckon on Christ as dwelling in the heart, regardless of our feelings, if we are walking obediently before him. Here is where many get in trouble. They try to walk by feelings rather than faith. Distinguish between the fact of God's presence and the emotion of that fact. Believe God's word and power more than you believe your own feelings and experience. That's hard. Believe God's word and power more than you believe your own feelings and experience. Your rock is Christ, and it is not the rock which ebbs and flows, but only the sea of life that ebbs and flows. Oh man, if I could do that, if I could place my hope and my trust fully, 100%, entirely, on the rock that is in Christ and not let my feelings on a day-to-day basis kind of sway and push me and go, well, gosh, I feel distance from the Lord and so I must have done something wrong again. God's in this swivel chair and he's looking at me when I'm doing good, but then when I'm doing bad, he turns away from me. No, that's not our God. That's not our God. And so the assumption is this, this based on feelings. And so let me ask you this. If that's true, if your assumption about salvation is, hey, it's based on feelings, what, what attitude does that create in you? What emotions does that create in you? 
Fear, definitely. What else? Instability, absolutely. Why instability? Yeah. So when you're doing good, you feel good. You feel close. When you feel bad, you feel far away. That produces fear. And so the one, the word that I put down next to it is insecurity. Insecurity. Do you all mind if I erase this first one? So there's an insecurity with it because we're letting our feelings dictate our faith. So here's what many of us do. We take our feelings and let them dictate our experience. Then we take the experience and filter it through our reason And then take our reason and filter it through our tradition. And then take tradition and read scripture. And so don't get lost in all this. What this is saying is that many of us use our feelings to determine how we read the word of God. That as we read the word of God, we're using our emotion, we're using our feelings. I sit with the word of God, I feel distant from God. And so all of a sudden I read verses about God Um, pushing the Israelites away, and he goes, oh, I guess he's pushed me away. We use our feelings to dictate what we read in Scripture. That is not the way the Bible is meant to be read, but rather the reverse. That Scriptures is the inerrant, flawless Word of God. And the Scriptures should dictate our tradition. And the tradition should dictate our reason, how we think about all these different things, should inform our experience, and finally should inform our feelings. All these things are good, but when you flip the order, they become destructive. When you let your feelings dictate your your faith, or feelings dictate how you read the Word of God, It becomes something where it's insecure, it's all over the place, there's fear attached to it, there's an underlining assumption that it's all based on, uh, your, your salvation is based on your feelings, everything is flipped. But when you let your scriptures, this is what the word of God says. The word of God says that in Christ you are a son of God, holy and blameless. Well, I don't feel holy and blameless. You are holy and blameless in God. That when he sees you, he sees you through the lens of the cross, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And but you go, but 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 I sinned today, yes. And that's what he washed away. He sees you. He sees his beloved, adopted child. I don't feel that way. Doesn't matter. It's true. So what I do often is I go, God, I just I, I sinned again. I'm wrestling with this. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm struggling. And so, God, when I read these things about you loving me, you carry me, I go, yeah, yeah, I get that. I get that you love me and carry me, but, but I, need to, I need to kind of earn that love and feeling back, you know? I don't feel like I got that. 
God goes, no, I want you to believe you are my child adopted in Christ. And that should inform your tradition, just how everything kind of flows. And that forms your reason, your reason, uh, how you process new information, which informs your experience of life as you're walking throughout the day and you see different things happening. You get a flat tire, God must be angry with me because I had a bad day. Therefore, my experience dictates that I don't know. So many of us have flipped those things. And the scripture says, I want the scriptures to inform your tradition, tradition to inform your reason, reason to inform your experience, and experience to inform your feelings. So the answer to all this is that salvation is not based on feelings. It's based on Christ. And that's found in Romans 8. Verses 31 through 39. It's a long section of scripture, but I want us to read it. And as I read it, don't just do that thing where someone's reading scripture and you're starting to kind of daze off. None of us do that? Okay. Um, Romans eight thirty-one on. I want you to see what this is saying about feelings and emotion and, and, and all these different things. And so Romans eight thirty-one, if you have your Bibles, turn there. Romans eight thirty-one through 39 says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it that can condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, he is the one who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution, shall famine, shall nakedness, shall danger, shall sword, shall your own feelings, shall how your day goes, shall everything about your life, shall the fact that you struggled again, can anything separate you from the love of God that is in Christ, as it is written, verse 36. For we, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. Verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor heights nor death, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is what the scripture says. But what, what about when I struggle? What about when I sin? The scripture says nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ. And so this individual that goes, look, I came to camp whenever I was younger. And when I came to camp whenever I was younger, I had this kind of roller coaster on the top of the world moment with God. But then guess what? Now I'm in the valley. What do I do with that? Welcome to the club. <laughs> you see it throughout scripture that there's individuals, Peter, James, and John, three disciples of Jesus, were on this mountaintop experience with God, with Jesus Christ at the thing called the transfiguration where Jesus literally kind of pulls away his veil and they begin to see his glory. They literally have a mountaintop experience with Jesus. And a few chapters later, they're in a dark valley called the Garden of Gethsemane. 
and Jesus is sweating drops of blood. And these guys that were so willing to follow Jesus with all their heart, mind, and soul are now asleep. They can't even stay up to pray with him. That those closest to Jesus, walking with Jesus in their time on earth, had moments of great emotional, spiritual connection with God, and then times in which they were so, eh, I'll just take a nap. I don't feel what's, whatever's going on here. And so nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Salvation is not based on your feelings or emotions. Colossians, I believe the end of Colossians 1 said it's hidden, or Colossians 3 says it's hidden with Christ. And if it's hidden with Christ, it's not hidden with you. It's hidden with him who's at the right hand of the Father. If it's hidden with him, nothing can get to him. So that's our second conversation. Our third conversation was with Sarah. Sarah met Daniel at the same camp. Sarah grew up in a strict religious-based church. On the last night, the camp preacher asked everyone to close their eyes and raise their hands if they wanted to invite Jesus into their hearts. Sarah raised her hand and then followed along with the prayer that the pastor led. Sarah believed that her struggle with sin was now over. She soon realized that her struggle with sin had just begun. Day after day, she kept struggling with the same old sins she thought Jesus had rescued her from. And after months of failure, Sarah began to question whether or not she was ever truly, had ever truly trusted Christ. She started believing that maybe she did not pray the right prayer or believe exactly the right thing. So what is the underlining assumption for Sarah? Workspace, yes. So just like with Daniel, the assumption was, hey, my salvation is based on my feelings. For Sarah, my salvation is based on works. Now, where do you see that in that little conversation? Yeah, that's good, Phil. So did you hear that? This idea of, hey, I'm still struggling with sin. I thought Jesus rescued me from that. I thought I was just going to float around on a cloud for the rest of my life and never struggle with sin again, and everything was going to be awesome, everything's going to be great. But then that same sin knocks on your door, and it actually seems to knock louder. So wait, maybe... I haven't done fully what I was supposed to do. Maybe there's still this other part that I haven't done yet. What else do you see in that conversation? Yeah. So a misunderstanding of how salvation works. Absolutely. What else? That points you to this idea of works-based salvation. Uh-huh. Yeah. So a misunderstanding of salvation, a misunderstanding of how sin and salvation work together or work against each other. 
yeah, she didn't say the right prayer. Like there was, like there was some, but I'll unpack that a little bit more. Yeah, exactly. So there was this idea of, hey, if I have to say the right thing, maybe there's this magical formula that God's up there kind of going, oh, man, you for, you yeah, so close. <laughs> so, so close. But you forgot to end it. You said Lord Jesus Christ and not Jesus Christ our Lord. Man. <laughs> maybe next time, champ, you know. So I would say, hey, under this thing called assumption with Sarah, there's kind of two things that we see often. One is this um, works-based mentality by Daniel. One is this works-based mentality. And this is the tradition I grew up in. The tradition said this. There's this thing called grace. And in order to receive grace, you have to do certain things in front of God in order to receive this. Now, if you can do something to earn grace, what is the flip side of that coin? You can do something to lose it. And so the idea of the tradition I grew up in said this. God wants to give you grace. But in order to receive grace, you have to do these things called sacraments. And if you do these sacraments, these are means of grace by which God allows you to do. So that's like confession. That's like um, uh, being confirmed into the church. That's like doing the Lord's Prayer. That's like baptism. That's all these different things. But guess what? You're also going to do this thing called sin. And so whenever you sin, you fall away from grace. That's the tradition I grew up in. So God wants to give you grace. Do certain things to get it. But guess what? You lose it. But it's okay because you can do more sacraments to get it back. But then you walk away and you sin. And you go back and you have to do sacraments. And so you have to continuously confess and confess and confess and confess so that you can continuously wipe down to zero. And guess what? If you die somewhere right here, that's okay. There's this thing called purgatory in which you go to, and it's kind of this cosmic holding room. Because again, God wants to give you grace, but he's got to kind of make you suffer for it first. And because you didn't do these things called sacraments before you died, you went to confession, then you came out, you left the confession, you had an inappropriate thought that you dwelled on, and then all of a sudden, bam, you get hit by a car, you go to this holding cell until you have been purged of your sin. It's bad theology. Clear and simple, bad theology. Please. Uh, I, I don't want. I don't want to get off on this because no, please. No idea. Um, they would say. I, I, I'm assuming that they would say this. So uh, it's funny you mentioned that because that is the verse that is the answer to this question. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure how they would answer a lot of the Bible. Um, what they have done, however, is that they have taken, this church has taken tradition and made it match scripture. And so when ch- tradition and scripture matches, what happens when there's conflict? They would say tradition wins. And so tradition outdoes scripture. Exactly. And that's why this thing, 
is so important to this thing. And so that's where it's very difficult. Because um, you're looking at them and saying, hey, what about this? Well, our leaders have said this. Exactly. And they would agree to that. And they would also say that their leadership is also inspired by God. So this is the largest denomination in the world. So grace is up and down, die, go to purgatory. You got it. So there's another thing that's actually in here as well, and it's something that we deal with a lot, and it's a lot more subtle. What did the pastor say to the kids about what it meant to be saved? Look, look in your conversation. Invite Jesus into your heart. Are we ever asked to invite Jesus into our heart in Scripture? No. We're, we're called to believe in Jesus Christ, and there's a subtle difference to that. So I was, I, I was asked as a seventh grader, invite Jesus into your heart. Now, I don't believe that what I did there wasn't me believing in Jesus. Um, but what I see often is this. In order for pastors and individuals to, to have this kind of big show of what God is doing, they'll, they'll kind of present the idea of accepting Christ in a different manner. And so I remember sitting at a... Um, had have been a, probably a fourth, fifth grade camp, so a preteen camp, and the guy who up on stage, who was a great leader, great believer, great teacher of the word of God, was trying to say something in such a way that the kids understood what it meant to believe in Jesus. And the phrase he used was this, do you want to be a friend of Jesus Christ? You want to be Jesus Christ's friend? Nowhere in it did he say, believe in the cross, the resurrection, that you were broken, that you, you were a sinner, that you needed a savior. It was simply, do you want to be a friend of Jesus. And now here's what happened after that. Half the kids weren't paying attention. The other half did this motion. Hey, do you want to be a friend of Jesus? Are we going to stand up? Are we going to do this? Okay, everyone stand up at once. We are all collectively friends of Jesus now. The other half who weren't paying attention were, were like, oh, are we dismissed? And in that moment, everyone stood up and just started walking different directions. And we're sitting there and the guy on stage goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, everyone sit back down. Uh, and he had to rethink how to phrase it. And so when we are saved, are we friends of Christ? Yes. When we are saved, does the spirit of God come and live with inside us? Yes, Galatians 4 says that. But when oftentimes we're sharing what it means to have a relationship with Christ, we miscue the language. And it becomes about this invitation. I have to say this prayer to receive this thing instead of going, hey, that thing that happened it becomes about you, rather that thing that happened, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. And because of him, if I, if I trust who he is, that he was the son of God, and I trust what he did for me, that he died on my cross for my sins and rose from the grave. If I believe in that, then it says that he gives me his perfect standing before God. I believe that. See how that's different than inviting Jesus into your heart. It's very subtle. It's very subtle. And yet it comes down to a bad theology. Both of these do. And so when you have this salvation based on works, so let, let me, well, yeah, when you have this salvation based on works, what, what emotions and what attitudes do you think it produces in you? If, if this is true, 
What attitudes, what emotions are you going to feel on a daily basis? Yeah, so you're not good enough. Yeah, think about that. Every day, voice in your head, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. What else does it produce? Anxiety. Lots of anxiety. Because if you're not good enough, what happens if I die here? What happens if I didn't say the right prayer? What happens if after all of this, I've given my life to Christ, I stand before him for all of eternity, and he goes, so close. So close. Anxiety. Anxiety. Any other emotion that that fills you up with? I'm sorry? You're not worth enough. Yeah, you're worthless. You're worthless. Oh, man. And again, this is where, with my upbringing, this is my common struggle, that I have to wake up each day and go, my God loves me. My God cares for me. My God sent a son for me. I have value, not because of who I am, but because of who he is. And I am not falling in and out of his grace. It says in scripture, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that we are surrounded by his grace. And so the attitude that I said, you're all absolutely right. The one that I put is just nervousness. There's this nervousness. There's this anxiety. There's this fear. There's this unworthiness. And so the word that, and so put whatever word you see most fit for you. But I put nervousness. The answer to salvation being based on works is that salvation is a free gift. It's a free gift. You can't earn something that's free. So Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 is the verse we're going to read. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. And so this is a very subtle lie. They take they take justification. Justification, I'm not going to write it right there because y'all can't see that. They take justification. Justification means that you have right standing in front of God. Should I say just? Means that you have been declared right before God. Past, present, future sins, you have been saved from the punishment of sin. And scripture teaches that because of that, you will be sanctified, which means that over the course of your life, you will be gradually saved from the power of sin in your life. And that will produce, as you are justified, that equals both sanctification and glorification. Glorification is the idea that you will stand fully before God, fully the way that you are meant to be. What this other tradition does is this. That justification plus sanctification equals glorification. That is a scary place to live. Because what if I don't do this well enough? And on top of that, who decides if I do that well enough? And how can I know if I did that well enough? You don't. 
until you die. And you stand before the Lord and go, whoa, I thought I was here. No, I got how many years in purgatory? Purgatory is not found in scripture. Purgatory was an idea developed through tradition to try to answer this logical question. If you're jumping in and out of salvation, what about someone who does confess and is walking with the Lord and then leaves, has an impure thought and dwells on it and begins to gratify themselves with it and then all of a sudden they, they get hit by a carriage, you know, or a lightning bolt hits them. What do we do with that? Well, let's, well, I guess, huh, God must, uh, let's, uh, well, it sounds like, well, maybe there's a holding cell. Can't find it in scripture. Can't find it in scripture. So there's a nervousness. Um, Romans nine ten and not Romans ten nine and ten also says this. Look, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now you might be saved. You could be saved, not good luck. You're saved for a moment and then you gotta keep jumping back into it, but you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Your salvation is based on works is the assumption. Nervousness, anxiety, confusion, unworthiness is the attitude. Salvation is a free gift is the answer. Thank you. Romans 10, 9 through 10. Romans 10, 9 through 10. If you're walking someone through the gospel message, great verse to land on. Last conversation. Jim lived for worldly things for years, but the Lord radically changed his heart through a friend who invited him to church. After hearing a message of God's grace through Jesus Christ, Jim trusted in Christ's finished work on the cross and resurrection for his salvation. Jim dove into the Bible and started asking every question under the sun, and yet years later, Jim still has a lot of questions, but has grown tremendously in his walk and love for the Lord. Jim's friend, who invited him to church years ago, is starting to claim that he is no longer a Christian. Jim is worried about his friend, but is also now confused. If my friend could lose his salvation, could I? So what is the assumption in this? can lose your salvation based on what? I'm looking at someone I think has been saved and they seem to have fallen away. Yeah. Yeah. So someone who looks really good, goes to church, even invited you to church, now is claiming they're not a believer. You're worried for them, but you're kind of worried for yourself as well. And so the assumption would be very similar to the last three in different ways, but that external actions external actions indicate internal faith. And sorry my handwriting is so awful. I know you were thinking it. Um, external actions indicate internal faith. 
And so if you think that internal act, or external actions are an indicator of internal faith, that it is the indicator, I should say, what, and you see your friend goes to church, invited you to church, you, you were saved radically, your life was turned upside down by this message that you thought your friend believed as well, and now he's moving away, he's claiming he's not a believer, he's walking off. What emotion, what, what, what attitude does that feel? What do you now feel about yourself and about your friend? Yeah, saddest for my friend. Absolutely. What else? Why continue? Why continue? Yeah. This is, if in five years I'm going to just walk his path, is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Why continue? What else? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so many of these fuel the same nervousness, anxiety, confusion. I thought Jesus said, I came to give you life and life to the fullest. And so if you're feeling anxiety, worry, anxiousness, I don't think that's from the Lord. In fact, Jesus explicitly said, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't have anxiety. I don't want you to have anxiety. That's not life. If anyone could push a button right now and get rid of all anxiety in their life, would they? Yes. <laughs> Jesus said, I came to give you life and life to the fullness. And so I, I would agree. Anxiety, worry. I would say there's a fear. There's a fear attached to it. If it happened to him, it could happen to me too. So the answer to this is where we're going to land as we close. As the scripture teaches, once saved, always saved. And the passage we get from that, Romans 8, 28, and 29 and 30, says this. You see how many times we've jumped to Romans 8? Just saying, you should, that's the verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We love that verse, right? Read the next one. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many believers. And those who he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. Those who he justified, he also glorified. Doesn't even mention sanctification. So thief on the cross. Was he baptized? Not by water. Did he do good works? Did he go and join the Boy Scouts? No. He died. He said, would you remember me as you enter into your kingdom? You're a king would you remember me as you enter into your kingdom? Because I want to be where you're at. Jesus goes, man, so close. You need to get off of here. And if you could go and just give some money to the poor, that would really make it easier for me as I put in a good word for you for the father. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He who has been justified will, the promise from God, will be glorified. 1 John 2, 19 says this. So, so, Derek, before I read this, I do have a friend who walked with the Lord for a long time, or at least appeared to, and now, now they're not, and so that's kind of confusing for me. 1 John 4, or excuse me, 1 John 2, 19 answers that question. It says, they went out from us, and they were not of us. For they had been with us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they, that they all are not of us. Let me read that again. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they wouldn't have continued with us. But if they went out of us, went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. And so what is that saying? Saying, look, you're walking with individuals. Can, can y'all think of any person in scripture that falls into this category of, hey, they were walking with us. We thought we were on the same team. And then, bam, they proved that they were never with us. Anyone in scripture? Judas. Exactly. Judas. So if you're walking with Jesus in those three years, how many disciples does he have? He has 12 apostles. I mean, look at Judas. He's out there. He's doing great stuff. It says that he even goes off and does works for Christ. He goes and evangelizes for Christ. But then guess what? It showed that throughout the entire time, his heart was never in it. He did not truly believe Jesus was who he said he was and was going to do what he said he was going to do. And so on the night Jesus was betrayed, two individuals run into the darkness. They both betrayed Jesus. One is Judas. Anyone know who the other one is? Peter. The rock. Peter. So what's the difference? It says one of them ran off Felt bad because it didn't play out that it, the way it, he wanted it to. Gave back the money and then goes off and kills himself. Judas. One goes off by himself and it says he weeps bitterly. He mourns the fact that he just sinned against his Savior. And Jesus returns for him. Jesus returns for him. And so... The assumption, external actions indicate an internal trust. So question, how can you know for sure? How can you know for sure? I'm going to cover these very quickly because Mark's going to come up at the very end and and hit these all in a lot more detail. How can you know for sure? First, do you have a present trust in Christ for salvation? Do you have a trust in Christ for salvation right now? Do you say that, yes, I believe that he, in fact, did die, that Jesus Christ literally lived. He was fully man, fully God, died on the cross, lived a life that I could not, died a death that I deserved, and rose from the grave, conquering what I could not conquer, and that is death itself. I believe in that message, and when I stand before God, and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? I'm going to say, Jesus. That's my answer. Do you have a present trust in Christ for your salvation. Philippians 1.6 says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will, that's a promise, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's number one. Do you have a present trust in Christ for salvation? Secondly, is there evidence of a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in your heart? 
That is not saying, did you go to church? Do you go to church? It's not saying that. But rather, Romans 8, 16 through 17 says this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are a fellow heir with the very Son of God. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. But the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are, in fact, children of God. And so it brings into light this last little part. Do I see a long-term pattern of growth in my Christian life? Do I see things in my life that I, okay, no, me, I grew up with a speech impediment. I couldn't say half the alphabet. What, what, what emotion do you think that creates in a young kid as he's interacting and trying to get in with the cool crowd? Insecurity. I was angry. I was angry a lot. In fact, I got to have these little lemon drop things in class because um, I would yell so much that I would have a hoarse voice. And so they, I, I thought it was cool because I got candy in class, but it was because I yelled so much. And when I first met my wife, I still had re- residue of that in me. And I responded in anger many times as we were just interacting with together, and it just escalated. But then I look at myself now and I go, okay, there's something that has been done in me not because I buckled down and made it happen and picked myself up and saved myself and went and read some good self-help books and did the Oprah Winfrey way and all that stuff. No. It's because daily I'm sitting with Christ going, God, there's some anger in me that I don't want here. And Father, you say that your anger doesn't accomplish your righteousness, so Father, could you help me today? Because I I know I'm going to be bent to be angry when I go out on that, you know? Some guy's going to cut me off or be going 50 and a 70. I'm like, you little, you know. <laughs> Do I see a present ongoing pattern of growth in my life? Second Peter 1, 3 through 11 says, says so that that would be true. And that you are to pursue these things. Second Peter 1, 3 through 11 says you are to pursue these things as a validation that you are in fact saved. So let me close. Um, I grew up, it is actually pretty easy to write these four different conversations because I was all of them um, in some way or another. Some more than others, but in some way, every single time at that gym when they say one to 10, ugh, some, some new thought would come to my mind. It, it might've been the idea of, hey, I, I just wasn't sure I can't be God, you know, whatever. It might have been the idea of that I don't feel close to God right now, so how can I say for sure? It might have been I sinned, how can I be for sure? Or it might have been, hey, um, there's some people I'm running with that I thought were doing well, and now they're just yelling against Jesus. So what about me? When am I going to fall? And it took years of just sitting with God I remember going out to this park near our house in College Station whenever I was uh, at Texas A&M as a student, and um, I would go to this park, and I would sit at this bench, and I would just have my Bible, and I would have my journal, and I felt so distant from God. I felt so alienated by Him. I felt, 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 and my feelings were dictating what I believed to be true about God. And on top of that, I could see my life of, God, I feel like I'm worse now than I was when I first came to you. 
All these things kept wrapping me up. And I would just sit there. And over time, spending time getting to know who God was and how he wanted me to know and walk in assurance and why he wanted, wanted me to walk in assurance. That he didn't want my feelings to dictate my salvation, but he wanted my faith to dictate my salvation because it was based on the finished work of Christ, not my finished work. That he didn't want me to see salvation as this up and down, grab it and then lose it, grab it and then lose it. And because he wanted me to walk in this freedom and assurance that once I was saved, I was always saved. And so now, that question's easy for me. It's a 10. Not because I'm arrogant, not because I'm basing it on feelings, I'm having a good day right now, or not because I've overcome certain sins by my own power, or because I see a lot of people running with Christ, and I go, okay, I think we can make it to the end. Good job, guys. But rather because it was his work, not my own. It was me having faith in him, not having feelings. It's because I know that once I am saved, brought into the family, adopted into the family of Christ, I'm an heir. I am linked up with my brother, Jesus Christ. And he is in heaven at the right hand of the throne of God right now, and nothing can get out of his hand. Nothing. Nothing. And I am with him. How does it work? I'll leave that up to him. But the one who called me into his marvelous light, I trust, will keep me going and bring me where I get to stand before him and we're not asking this question anymore. So all of this ultimately counts, comes down to one thing, and that's trust. It's trust. Do you trust him? And so we're going to take a break here, and our next 30 minutes or so, Sean's going to come up and going to tackle that one question. Do we trust him? Let me pray for us real quick. Father, we thank you for you and, and thank you for all of this. And um, Father, we pray for ourselves and those in our lives, that, Father, that we struggle with this on some level, um, whether it's within our own hearts or within those that we love and care about. Um, Father, help us to walk out of here, not with some good advice, but, Father, with your word. So, Lord, I just... Um, Thank you for you, and just pray um, that we would walk in the freedom, um, that we would walk in trusting you, like Sean's going to talk about, and then walk in the freedom of what it means uh, to know that you are saved, and how that impacts your day-to-day life, like Mark's going to talk about. So, Lord, we love you, and we ask these things through your spirit, and in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Give you about a 10-minute break, and then we're going to come back here, and Sean's going to take over the next part. My sister missed about six weeks of school because she had pneumonia. My father, it's the only time I can even think of, had to take her to school that day. When he was walking her to school and she was a little bitty thing, he astutely noticed that she was trying not to panic, having to go back into a school situation. She'd been out for six weeks with mommy. And he takes her off into a room, off to the side, and he just gets down on her level, and he said, you see that clock up there? This is before digital, okay? He said, you see that clock up there? You see the big hand? When it goes around three times, I'll be back. She said, I remember feeling a, a calm. And she said, I watched the clock like a hawk, but I had a, a peace. That's what I want to think about. Why did she trust him? Was it because he said, 
he would be back, or was it more? And that's what I want us to look at. The need for security and the assurance of that security is just hardwired into us. We want to know from the time we're little, crossing that over to our assurance with our Heavenly Father, we need to know. He's asking us to do a lot and go through a lot, so we got to know who it is that told us. So that's what we're kind of looking at today. And I want to start off by saying, stop and say here that I've been a Christian most of my life, and there are still times in my life I'm like, is this, am, I, am I making this stuff up? Is this really real? You know, it's normal. Another great example that helped me kind of settle this issue, John the Baptist. He was the forerunner for Christ, cousin. He was the voice to introduce the Christ. He's in jail, in prison, awaiting to be beheaded. And even he said, are you really who you said you were? Disciples bring word back from Jesus, and what did he say? Remember everything I told you. Remember what you saw. So he was talking about what he said, but he was also talking about their relationship. It was more than just a distant, just hang in there, it's going to be okay. You're going to be with me someday. <clears throat> All right, what, this question of am I saved and can I be sure is not one that needs to be dealt with and it needs to be finalized. We need to figure this out and not have to return to it, right? Because it will affect everything else we do. I gave you definitions, and this is important on our foundations when we're using terminology, and when we're for ourselves and for others, the difference between security and assurance. The definition for, for security and understanding security is that when we trust in Jesus Christ, yeah, that'd be great. We trust in Jesus Christ. That is a spiritual reality. Okay, I think the cool thing about the spiritual reality is that it's true whether I believe it or not. I really like that part. Because I don't have to completely understand it. My car running, I don't have to understand to know that's, that's a spiritual reality to me, to, to me when I need to get somewhere, that that's working. Um, we understand that one, one's belief in security in Christ does not make it true or false. If we have complete, complete trust in the personal work of Christ and our salvation, it is a fact. And I would liken that to the law of gravity. Does law, the law of gravity care whether I believe in it or not? If I were to jump off the building out here, does it care whether I said, that's not going to apply to me, it doesn't have anything to do with me? Not at all. I'm going to look like an idiot. And I will have proven that I was wrong when I hit the bottom. Our salvation is the same thing. We should have that same security and the security comes in knowing who it is that gave it. The assurance part of that is the actual realization of that security, that I am realizing who I am in Christ. And then the comprehension of what that entails for me. Not just for my eternal outcome, but God has put eternity in our hearts. I have eternity in the future, but I also have eternity now. I can live with eternity in mind. The things that are going on now, and you turn on the TV all the right now the news and politics and all that, it can get you in a little bit of a whirlwind. We don't have to get on that roller coaster because we've got attorney in mind. Okay, God's still on his throne. It's going to be okay. The, tr- the point is and the truth is that we're all trusting in something. When we got in our cars this morning, we drove down here, we were trusting that we were going to be able to get here, we were going to be safe, 
It's not always the case, but we're trusting that we're going to be able to get down here. We trusted the elevator getting up here. We'll probably trust it to go back down. The chairs that we're sitting in required trust that it was going to hold us up. I'm not going to sit in it if I don't think it's going to hold me up. So for today, that's what we're going to look at. And as Derek so eloquently pointed out, is do we trust the one who told us? Do we trust the one that we are spending our time with? And then as we're looking at this, make it really personal. Am I spending time with? Do I know Do I know who I'm saying I'm talking about? Because don't you know that when you're talking about somebody, if somebody says something that's not true about him, you're going, he wouldn't say that. She wouldn't do that. And And I go to the person, this was said, and I go back and find out, God's the same way. He's a person. His spirit indwells in us. And so spending time with him, and what does that require? This is, this is new to a lot of people in, that we deal with, being still and being quiet. It means if you, don't have, if you don't want another moment of quiet from this day until you die, you don't have to have it anymore. That's a scary thought. Now, it sounds like for some people, oh, that's heaven, that's comfort for me. That's noise that distracts our relationship with God. Even if it's about God, that's not, God didn't give it. And even these uh, sermons on, you know, the podcast or whatever, they're great and they're blessed, but never to replace him. So we've got to spend that time with him. The, uh, I want to look at three principles. Trust in the Lord. We can trust in his word. And we can trust in our relationship. So those are the three areas that we're going we're gonna to look at. Some things with my sister's experience that are important to note is that my father wanted her to know. He wanted her to know. He told her. He came back. What did she do? She remembered it. And she lived like it. Okay, putting ourselves in that classroom with whether it's a guy or a girl, sitting in that classroom and we've just been told I'll be back, watch for me, that's likened to our Christian life. Whether, what, regardless of what she was thinking or the doubts she was having in that room that day or she was had something bad happened, somebody hurt her feelings or she was fearful of something that was going to happen, or even if it was a good thing, did anything going on in that room have anything to do with what my dad was doing while he was outside that door and whether he was coming back? Not a thing, okay? So her feelings and what was happening to her had nothing to do with his trustworthiness, right? He told her he was coming back, and he did, okay? That's how God is with us. It's not based on what's going on in our little world. It's based on his word of the great I am who said, and so that's what we want to count on. That's what we want to know. What did he say to me? And can I trust the one who said? Okay, that's what we're going to be looking at. First thing we want to look at is God's character. In any relationship, don't we want to know the character? I'm not going to hang out with a liar or somebody that's got a dark, shady side. All right? So, and this list could have been, I could have given you a book on his character. But the, the ones I wanted to point out were, and I put scriptures, and there are a ton more. I already I cut it down three times because y'all were going to already have a novel to take home. I go, but it's a resource. I'm like, they're going to think it's a book. So I tried to cut it down for you. He cannot lie. That's a big deal. I love Numbers 23, 19. He's not human that he can lie. All right? He is good. He is a good father. And I love, Steve, what is it that Todd says? Yeah, I love that. 
Uh, that's huge. So when we have anything that's questionable and we're looking, say it out loud if you have to. Let the enemy hear it. Strengthen your heart. My father's good. I don't care what's happening. I have to say that a lot because I'm like, especially with, when something hurts my boys, I'm just like, oh, but you're good. I focus on that, what I know, not what I don't know. All right? This looks bad, but whatever you're doing is going to be good. That's so important. He's forgiving. He's merciful. He's patient. Oh, boy, it's something I could use more of. I try not to pray for it, though, because it's not very fun when he teaches it. But it's important to have. As I said, the list could go on and on, but I wanted to give you a little um, idea to go on and study. If you want to study more and just have your mind blow, blown, look at the attributes of God and the names of God. Just go look at those and just see who your father is. And you'll start to see and start to start to think back and remember where you have seen that attribute in your life and where you will see it in your life to come. Um, there's nobody like him, and he, he just fills voids that where we can be. Um, we're missing, and we're thinking that it's him, and it's not. We've got to know who he is and cling to that. So our principle here, the Lord is worthy of our trust. That's a clear-cut statement. It's not a question. He is worthy of our trust. He has a track record to go with that. And our application <clears throat> to go with this, I want us to just think about this for a minute. Um, I have kind of a science background, so I like if-then. But if I'm not trusting him with the little things, finances, relationships, and, yeah, they seem like a big thing to us in our little world, but in the big scheme of things, he's like, if I could handle creation, I could handle your cell breakdown in your body and how your, a cell knows how to make your eye work and another one knows how to make your digestive. That just blows my mind. That has got God all over it. So I'm like, you have my full attention. If I'm not trusting him in the little things like my boys' spouses or their schools or jobs, my relationship, where I'm going to live, do I need a new car? All of these things, and I'm worried about that. How in the world am I going to trust him with my security of my salvation and the assurance of that? So with that in mind and thinking about ourselves, if I'm not dealing with that, I need to go back and make sure, okay, if I know my salvation is secure, and I, yes, I am sealed with the Holy Spirit, but I'm not trusting him with my daily things and my finances and do I need to invest in this? Well, do I put it in here? Oh, the market's not. If you catch yourself getting on that little roller coaster, stop. Press pause and you go back to the Lord. We've got to learn to trust him in every detail because assurance is kind of a thing that comes in the back door. It's not something, oh, yeah, I'm all of a sudden assured of anything. It kind of comes in the back door by experience. Wouldn't you agree? Assurance is not something that we just automatically attain. So if I can trust in the Lord, then I can trust in his word. So in the uh, second point, (coughs) sorry, what has God's word told us about salvation? What do you believe? And this is kind of cool because Derek did a good job on, I I left some blanks for you, but you guys have already kind of filled it out. What do we believe about God's word? Because what we believe is going to be 
very important because it informs everything else. So there's a grid that Derek already kind of gave for you, and so that is kind of helpful because you all are already scholars on this grid, and so that's going to allow me to kind of give you a little more example. And the first one, the, the grid of, um, it's a grid that can be used for any kind of thinking and decision-making. Remember what Derek said? Yeah, I heard somebody say it. Scripture. Scripture should always be the first thing that informs us. Our thinking. What was the second one? Yes. Good job. What's the third? What is it? Reason. Reason. Good. Yeah. Thank you. What's the fourth one? Derek will be so proud. All right. All right. He did such a good job on this. I'm going to kind of jump into a little bit of um, examples on this because these are so important because they're already there whether we realize it or not. But this helps us to make it a little more tangible when we're thinking through things. And our human nature is that we start down here. And then we, I'm feeling this way and I'm going to need to find a verse to back that up. We can do that, but that doesn't make it right. So we've got to start here. And each one of these is important, but if any of these, if we use feelings, experience, reason, tradition, trump scripture, we're in trouble. It's kind of like on a GPS, if I'm wanting to head to Washington, uh, and I'm even D.C. I know I could go that way too, can I? Uh, Washington, D.C., and I'm like even a tick off in my starting point, I could totally miss the state. Okay, it's not a very big area up there, but <laughs> you see my point. If I get off down here anywhere, I, and I, totally, I could be totally off of scripture and not even be aware of it, and I'm like, God did that. Well, God failed me. I'm like, God gets a black eye so many times because we weren't responsible in this kind of thing in this process of making sure I know what God's mind is on this thing. And we have to be so careful about that. And I was thinking about, as Derek was talking, raising my boys, my, my middle one was um, a little more emotional, and I'm not. And so he was, when he was little, he just, he, one time he told me, he said, I, I hate you. He was really mad at me. He was like Mr. Machete Mouth. And I was just like, I was like, take a deep breath. And I'm like, do you really hate me or are you just mad at me? And he's like, his shoulders drooped, and he's like, I'm just really mad at you. And I was like, okay, well, there's a difference. So watch your words, and let's talk about why you're mad at me. I understand why you're mad at me, but what, you don't hate me, so let's not say that. You're not going to want to say that later. And the other thing that I, that recall, I recalled with him is when he was little, he, um, I had my older one was a little more strong-willed, and I could just say it right to his face and the middle one, not so much. I, we, he could escalate. And so I, I do, he would just tell me one time, he, he was five, I guess, you're just trying to ruin my life. I was like, whoa, where did that come from? I'm like, didn't know I had that power. But um, we had a, I just was like, okay, well, Lord, what do I say to him? And I just looked at him and I said, okay, let's get a foundation here. 
that we don't ever have to go back and rebuild. I will never do anything intentionally to ruin your world, to hurt you. I would die for you. I would do anything. So let's get that established, all right? And he was like, he's like, all right. I said, I'm sorry if, I, if I've upset you, but I'm, it doesn't mean I'm going to change what I'm, gonna, I'm doing here. But let's not ever go back there. I love you. They're not even any words. And he immediately, his, just, his shoulders softened. And I said, let's talk about what, what we're talking about here. I said, when God draws a line for me, I'm not going to cross it. I'd rather you be mad at me than him because I will be held accountable. And he was like, okay. When he hits puberty, <laughs> puberty does mean things, bad things to good people. <laughs> cute little thing comes back. And he started the same thing. He was upset because I was saying, no, we're not going to go do this. And he started to get upset. And I was just like, take a deep breath. And that, that silver tongue that can melt butter can also cut it when he wants to. And I was just like, okay, let's, let's, do you remember when we had that talk years ago about our foundation? And I said, and he just looked at me. I said, that hasn't, nothing's changed. And he got, he's, his whole countenance softened. He, I said, let's talk now. And he was like, okay. And we were able, nothing ever escalated. We were able to talk about what the issue was. You know how I knew how to do that with him? God does that with me. And that keeps us on what matters. And we don't get off on the feelings. And, but this happened. Like, who cares? It doesn't matter. What do you, what's the main thing? What's the key thing? It saves time and, and energy and a lot of uh, blood, sweat, and tears. A quote that I saw that I really liked is, Feelings comes from assurance, not assurance from feelings. And this was a book that um, Nathan Wagnon, I was talking to him, I was, we were going to be talking on this, and Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, kind of sounds like an oxymoron, but it's by J.D. Greer, G-R-E-E-A-R, very helpful on this topic. But assurance doesn't come from our feelings. I'm, not, I'm always going to be shaky, just like Derek was talking about, if I go off of my feelings. Salvation is not given because you, prayer, you, you pray to prayer correctly, but because you have leaned the hopes of your soul on the finished work of Christ. That's huge. All right? I can be secure of who I'm leaning on, and it's not me. Because I'm not even sure today, if you ask me what my favorite color is, what my favorite color would be today. That, that's, it's not, and I, it's not compartmentalized. I, I cannot be trusted, but I know who can be. And that's who I lean on, whether I feel like it or not. Here's another thing that's important that um, I love about God's word is he, God chose every word on purpose. And he chose the Greek for the New Testament, the Greek uh, language for the New Testament. And when he used the word salvation, it is a completed action. So when you see salvation, the Greek is completed. It's not an ongoing thing. It's not an ing word, okay? It is completed. Justification, which is being made right with God, like uh, Derek said, Romans 5, 1 happens at the moment of our faith, when we're at the point of our conversion, and sanctification, which is becoming more like Christ, that is an ing word. It is ongoing until the day we die and are glorified. All right, and just as Derek was showing us, the glorification is guaranteed at justification. So sanctification is an ongoing process. I am always, so the day I die, going to be becoming more like Christ as long as I am depending on him and calling out to him. The book of Romans, as Derek said, 1 John is really helpful in uh, 
the assurance of salvation, but the book of Romans is huge, and it's God's heart. If you've never really read it, and uh, in a minute we're going to read some passages in it, but I wanted to lay out something that I think will be really helpful for you, And, and it's basically Paul is writing to the church in Rome. He hadn't been there yet, but he's wanting to go there. He's just so badly, and he's like writing this letter to them, he, and he loves these people, and he's wanting them to know his heart, and he's wanting to pour out the salvation and everything that goes with that. And I can just, I can just hear him and his heart. When I was pouring out to my kids, he's pouring out to his, this church in Rome, and he's wanting them to, to understand what God has done for them as believers in everything and every aspect from the past, the justification, to the, the sanctification for the present and the glorification in the future. So he's trying to lay all this out. So you have blanks again, and I wanted y'all to kind of have this for your own knowledge, but the first one is chapters 1 through 3, and that would be sin. All right, this is going to be important. I'm going to unpack this for just a minute because it's what we believe about this will impact the rest. And what Paul is saying here is that Basically, it's a horrible circle. Basically, all have sinned, right? All have sinned, and none of us is worthy of salvation apart from the, um, what Christ did on the cross for us. So he's saying that the pagan Gentile, he breaks it down. He just, he's going to cover everything. The pagan Gentile is without excuse because they had creation to look at. All right? Then he goes to the moral man. The moral man is without excuse because he has a conscience. He knows what's right and wrong. So he has a conscience. There's got to be a higher being that's setting that standard. I wouldn't know even what was right or wrong. And then you have the privileged Jew. Privileged Jew had the law and the covenants. So they're without excuse. I mean, they're the chosen people. So if they're not saved... We're, we're, we're saying something. Paul is saying something. He's like pulled the rug out. So this is called, what Paul is saying right here, total depravity. How we view total depravity, there's nothing good in me, will affect everything else. Just like what Derek was saying, if I think I had any part in creating my salvation, then I could lose it. If I had any part in, ma- in causing that to happen. So Paul is saying right here, all of us have sinned. So if, if I don't get this, I w- I'm dead. Dead men can do nothing, right? So I need to be created into something new. And so Paul is like totally ripped these people down. He's like, he's like oh, I, there's no, no hope. I'm, uh, there's, it's hopeless. So he goes into four and five. And this is cool. Right before he gets to four, I wanted to, I have um, some verses 3, 21 through, thir- 21 through 31 are really important because I'm going to go 3, 21. Okay, if you guys will read those in order and then we'll. Okay, so this is uh, Romans 3, 21. Consider one
Good, thank you. Awesome. Y'all did great. A pluses. Thank you all for doing that. I had them read out of the, the New Living Translation, a little sidebar here when you're reading scripture, especially Romans. It's justification, righteousness, sanctification. It's like the, the shuns, you know. It can be a little overwhelming. So getting the definitions down and understanding when you see this, this is what he's talking about. When you see this, it helps it be a little more clear. And so looking at a passage in different translations will help you. Now, I would not do a word study from the NLT because it's a paraphrase. We want to get as close to what God chose. What word did God use? As close as we can. There's good authority on that. So paraphrases are great for understanding. That's one reason I wanted you guys to read that in the NLT because Looking at that section right there is huge, and it's so it's um, it sounds a lot more pastoral here. It's like, oh, that's so sweet. But if I'm reading it in the ESV, I'm like, okay, that sounds pretty good. This this is like you're just seeing his heart in it in the the underlying message when we read it in context from different NIV, ESV, whatever. So that's why I like this one be, because of the pastoral aspect of it because he's just worn us out here. All right. I am a cur dog, worthy to be shot. Well, then, what was the first words in that in twenty one, Melanie? Um, the, the first two words. The, the first. This the first one's good. Uh, but now. But, mm-hmm. but now, yeah, good. Now. But so all no, you did good. So this, all of this, us, and it was like, uh, and he goes, but, and then that's like, then you like perk up and are going. Oh, you're saying I have a chance. Okay, so he gets into four and five, and he goes into justification. which makes me right before God, and it's a court term. I'm going to get rid of these other numbers because those are confusing. And then we get into 6 through 8, which is sanctification. And the end of 8, he gets into glorification. I thought Derek did a good job of explaining 
the glorification, our standing before God and our, the way God intended us to be from the beginning. So sanctification, we move into that. That's how this, we live this out. This is how the, uh, our life in Christ plays out. And as you, if you read it from beginning to end, you kind of can see Paul crescendoing. And it's just it's hard not to with him because it's, it it's amazing. And the, if you want to see uh, the other epistles, it's important to see that Ephesians 2 one through three says the same thing, that we're all depraved, not worthy of anything. And verse four, but, he says again. And so he's repeating that. So what does that tell us? We need to pay attention to that. That's important. So Paul sees that it's whatever he's saying, his message is so important that he's sending it to all of these churches. So as we look at, um, looking at Romans, we... It's hard to, I, I kept going back and forth on what to, to segment out, but with the time allotted and with our topic with assurance of salvation, Paul is like hitting the crescendo of the assurance of our salvation in the believer's life in 35 through 39. And so it was really nice that the Lord had Derek do those passages before because 29 and 30 are the uh, golden chain of salvation and he, where he's talking about to those, those he... And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So then it goes into God's everlasting light, uh, love. And that's where Paul is like really starting to crescendo for why we should be excited about what God is doing. So in Romans 35 through 39, we also see this uh, assurance of salvation in Philippians 1, 3, and 6. And Galatians two twenty and 21. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Pay attention as, you're, as we're reading this because every word matters. As it is written, we are regarded as sheep to slaughter. No, in, no, in all these things we are made conquerors through him who loved us. I am sure, I am sure that neither death nor life, it's pretty every, encompassing in this world, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in the creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our, our Lord. Okay, that sounds pretty good, but so what? Okay, Derek talked about this a little bit, but this is really cool because when you start to break down the just 35 through 39, that's, that's not very many. It's just a very few passages. Paul is... is with everything in him showing how much God loves these people, how much he loves the believer. He talks about, uh, emphasizes God's love three times in these passages, 35, 37, and 39. You notice the word separate, nothing can separate us. It bookends those passages, 35 to 39. Nothing can separate us in 35. 39, again, nothing can separate us, for nothing can separate us. And if another important key thing in these passages in 35a, is that it's real easy to misread that, that passage. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? All right, it's, whether we're realizing it or not, sometimes we can read that that love is based on how I feel, if I feel loved. That's about me. He's talking about it's not who is going to separate us from the love of Christ, but who is going to separate us from Christ's love for us. That makes a big difference. It's not about me. He's talking about his love. 
So that's why Paul's so excited, and that's why he's crescendoing with these believers, why this is such a big deal, is like, you are loved beyond imagine. It can't be take, you can't be separated. What has been done cannot be undone. What's sealed cannot, cannot be unsealed. So it's a big deal reading these. I really encourage you to read Romans in different uh, versions to see, to get both levels of what um, God is telling the believer through this because once we get emboldened and confident, it just pours out of us. We can't help it. So who we are in Christ, we have a position in Christ. And there, I gave you some verses there to um, go back and look at. And when you see verses, do the cross-references and see, because it, it's, it's what God is saying across the board. There's one message. He speaks with one voice, and he says it different ways, but um, that's when it starts to get depth, and it becomes 3D. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and that's, that's a big deal. The uh, God used the word sealed for a reason because in the ancient Near East uh, Bible times, and even today, seals are a big deal. They were a sign of uh, used to guarantee security and to indicate ownership. The stone that was enrolled, rolled in front of Jesus' tomb had a seal on it with the uh, emblem on it that was ownership that was theirs. It was a big deal. The Holy Spirit is God's seal on us, and God used that word on purpose so that the believer would know, I put that same seal on you, and the Holy Spirit is that seal. So us, whether we understand that or not, that's a big deal. And that he so, said that based on terminology, they would understand seals aren't as big a deal. I guess they are on your milk and your medicine and stuff like that. But understanding and grasping what that means that takes some sitting there and thinking about, why do you say that? I'm like, okay, that's a big deal because he's putting ownership on me and the Holy Spirit. If I have the Holy Spirit because I've accepted Christ and I believe, I have that seal on me. Whether I understand that or not, that's a done deal. Our name is written in the book of life, in the Lamb's book of life. I gave you some verses to look at that. The, um, that's a big deal. That's a, another thing we don't have to keep checking on our reservation on. It's a sealed, done deal. We don't have to worry about that. Access to the throne. We have access to the throne. That is just, some people are like, oh, I can't, I can't go to the throne. I'm like, why? I mean, it goes back to everything. A lot of those things Derek was talking about. When Christ died on the cross and that curtain tore into the Holy of Holies, that, that was for us. We have access to our king now. We don't have to wait for anybody. It's a very personal thing. And have you all thought about Easter is a, is a month from today? I'm like, that's kind of cool. I'm like, I love Easter. Uh, the older I've gotten, the more I understand. I'm like, it's Christmas, of course. I'm like, that was, oh, woo. And I still love it, love it, love it. But Easter has at least equal, maybe surpassed, because um, I'm not an emotional person, but when the Holy Spirit fills me, he tends to come out my tear ducts sometimes. And um, I, that's that's been a new thing for me. So um, it's just... He's just so tender um, to want us. He wants access to us. And I'm like, but think about that on an earthly level. I want my sons and their wives and, and whoever, grand, grandchildren, all that someday. I want them to know they have access to me. And I want them to know the purest of heart. I'm not, I don't have an agenda. I have the Lord's. 
that's what God wants us to, to know. When you have access to me, I have no agenda but my own. You know, he, he swears by his own name. I'm like, because there's no name higher. And, and that's my father. And so if you haven't thought about going to the throne room, man, do it today. Do it today. Today's going to be the first day in this Easter. Man, I've been praying that God would bring whoever he wanted here today. All of us have been. And that this Easter would knock your socks off in some way that you've never experienced it, that it would become real for you and whatever, because we've all got different experiences, but that it would be, it would just come alive for you to where you can hardly stand it. And um, that, that's what, that, the timing of this is so, that's, that's just fun, but that's all God's timing. We're his possessions, First Peter 2, 9. We're a royal priesthood, his possession. We're joint heirs with Christ. So Christ is God's son. He is God's heir. So when I ad- identify with Christ, I'm an heir with him, a fellow heir with him. So everything he gets, I get. I'm like, my brain still doesn't wrap around that, but I want it. And as I study and I spend time with him, I'm like, okay, that sounds really good. I don't fully get that, but I'm like, sign me up. I don't even have to understand because I know the one who said, and I'm learning to know uh, and trust the one who said with deeper and deeper things. We're adopted. Galatians 4 is a good book to look at adoption. Uh, as Paul was writing to the, the church there, uh, Ephesians and Second Corinthians, but Galatians is really good on that. Adoption is another word like seal that God chose to use in this section because he's talking about adoption back in biblical times in ancient Near East that these people would understand. When looking at heirs and court systems, Adoption was a big deal because if I had my children by birth, I didn't, I didn't get to choose what I got. This is kind of sounds kind of funny, but I didn't get to choose what, but if I wasn't like really pleased, I could unadopt them. I mean, I could inherit them. I could disinherit them. If I adopted a child and I got to go through the process of picking that child, the court says I got to pick. I can't disinherit them. Does that make sense? So if I, if I birthed them, I can because I didn't get the, I got stuck with the, the child. He just wants my food. Um, but if I adopted him legally, I can't disinherit him. That's why God chose the word adoption. We're adopted. We can't be unadopted. And it's hard for us because we were using context of today. He was using what they would understand, and that's what we need to go back and understand in context. So the principle here is trusting in God's word will assure us of our salvation. Trusting in God's word will assure us of our salvation. So we've got to know his word. Do I know what he said to me? What did he say? Just like my sister, what did, he, what did he say? He said, I'm coming back. Is he faithful to, pro- to what he promised? That's what we're finding out. And that's, we've got to have a track, re- track record with him. But we're not going to have a track record with him unless we spend time with him, right? So that moves us into if I can trust the Lord then I can trust his word, then I can trust my relationship with him. So our third point is trust in our relationship with the Lord. Scripture likens our relationship with him to a marriage. And the truth is, when we think about the tangible reality of it, when I got married, and the moment I said, I do, I didn't feel any more or less married. I didn't get to the wedding with this cute guy and he said, I do. I'm like, oh, all of a sudden I feel like I'm, gonna get, I'm married. That didn't do it for me. The ceremony didn't do it. It was a great ceremony, great. Well, I don't know. I think the cake was good. Um, so the ceremony didn't do it for me. So what was it? 
him either if we're going to be, or maybe it didn't. No, I'm kidding. Um, the relationship, knowing the person that I was getting, I was making a covenant relationship is what made me feel married. That's what I'm committed to, not the I do and not the ceremony. So when I say I believe, that's not the thing that makes me saved. Does that make sense? It's, it's, a, it's a public profession of what is already going on, the covenant that's already been made before God. So sometimes we want to think, well, you know, when did you say I do? And um, there's, It's not always like that, but it's a knowing that I am betrothed to Christ. And, it, and the, the ceremony and the I do isn't necessarily, it's the relationship of knowing of whom I'm leaning into. So part of my understanding who God is has been, well, not, I would say the depth of my relationship has grown in him because of the hard stuff. Smooth roads are good and don't necessarily hurt our trust, but they don't necessarily grow it either. When we get hit by life and hard things, sometimes that's where we're going, Lord, where are you? I thought we had something. And that's where when we press into it and we're going, I stick to what I know and not what I don't know, that's when I start to grow and figure, I start to see things I would have never seen otherwise. That's where the supernatural comes in and goes like, this shouldn't be happening. I should be really not trusting you, but I trust you more than I ever have before. And marriage is supposed to be like that. You're hearing the little marriage counselor come out in me because Steve and I when we're when we're when we love we're talking to each other like this and we love like this but when life hits us hard when we've had some hard stuff that should we shouldn't be married we're back to back I got your back and I know he's got mine that's how our God is my parenting his parenting our marriage if we can do that and God can't that makes us better at relationships and parenting than him no In the words of Paul, may it never be. Okay? That's not what's going on. It's because of him in us that equips us to be able to do those things. And so that relationship with him, there's going to be hard things because that's he creates a need so we see who who met the need. It's him, not me. And then I I can't help but not tell you. And so I see somebody else is going through something. I'm just like, let me tell you what he did for me. Let me tell you who it is. You're not alone. And we start to tell him what he said. And now I'm not just sharing a verse that sounds good. I'm just like, this is what he showed me. And this is what helped me just want to take the next breath when I didn't know I had another one. And so we've got the passion in it because now I've got the experience to back it up. John 14, 1 through 3, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believed in God, believe also in me. I love this passage. My father's house, the book of John is awesome. Um, My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I am going there to prepare you a place place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. Okay, that's huge. You know, that, that passage right there is laden with Jewish wedding imagery. Jesus is talking about, in again, like language that they would understand back in biblical times, ancient Near East, a man who wanted to marry a girl will go to her house, throw a party, ask her for her hand in marriage, and if she said yes, he would go back to his house, his father's house, and he would prepare a place attached to his father's Are you seeing the imagery here? That's pretty cool. God, Jesus, attached to his father's house, and then he would come back and get her. But before he left, he made sure she knew, I will be back. Why? 
He didn't want her to worry because worry would turn to doubt. And if she was doubting him coming back, that opened the door for other suitors, other things that could replace the true covenant relationship that was supposed to be. So he made sure she had that assurance. That assurance was her security that he was coming back and he would come back and marry her and take her back to his father's house whose place was attached to his father's house. So I'm like, that is cool. That's what Jesus does for us, okay? Jesus used that wedding imagery on purpose so that we would have that same assurance and same security. So that's us. We're the bride, all right? So we need to have that assurance because if we don't, that worry and doubt could could slip in and cause us to um, allow another or to hinder our our, uh, trust. All right. Here's another thing that the Lord taught me, that showed me with, um, in, in my personal relationship of really trusting him and where I was in my relationship with him. I said Easter's a month from today when um, my mother died of ovarian cancer. And when I was at her funeral, it was right at Easter, like a couple days before Easter. And I realized for the first time with, I think, the two being so close together, I had never re- grieved Christ's death on the cross like I grieved my mother. I had a first-person experience there, and I was having a third person at the cross. And I never realized that. I'm like, oh, man, I, I want to make that real. I'm like, I, I believe all of it, but I just wasn't there. So that realization has changed everything. So how you view the cross, are you viewing it as first person or third person? I was viewing it as a third person and didn't even know it until he he opened my eyes to that. So how we view that matters. Good theology matters, and making it personal matters. Philip Yancey wrote, I do not get to know God, then do his will. I get to know him more deeply by doing his will. I enter into an active relationship, which means spending time with God, caring about his people, the people he cares about, and following his commands, whether I spontaneously like it or not. Love for God is not a feeling, but obedience to God. All right, Charles Spurgeon said, A people of God be great believers. Little faith will bring your souls to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your souls. We can experience heaven right now. And and my prayer is that this Easter you'll have a taste of that, because once you have a taste of it, you're going to want more, and it will change how you live today, just like my sister in that classroom. We live that way every day back to back and then it starts to become a, a, a lifestyle and we don't even know when it happened but it does so our principle we can trust in our relationship with the lord and our application this is this is important here because everything we're talking about the assurance of salvation begs the question at the end of the day what is the tangible benefit of having being sure of my salvation and a point important enough that paul kept telling these churches and sharing the gospel a quote that I've, I heard this week that I really like is, you can't believe more than you know, and you won't live out more than you believe. You can't believe more than you know, and you won't live out more than you believe. Any doubt I have is going to hinder the living out of my faith. And in contrast, the assurance of things that I believe bring boldness and confidence to my beliefs. All right? So the danger is that I get assurance of my salvation just to make me feel good. I'm comfortable. Oh, I'm saved. I'm in. I'm on the team and not do anything with it just to have good dinner conversation. Paul didn't share the gospel in the heart of God in Romans and sharing the other epistles just so that those people would feel good. Why did he do it? 
to embolden them, to give them confidence, because from that, their, that emboldened confidence, their obedience was going to be emboldened and made more confident based on their salvation. So that's why he did it. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to all who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Assurance is the kerosene that ignites the fire that is already there. Doubt douses the flame of the Holy Spirit. That is why the issue must be settled once and for all, because it will affect the way we live. My sister, like us, was, was expectantly waiting on her father, and as we had children of God, we can have the assurance and salvation because we can trust in the Lord, we can trust in his word, and we can trust in our relationship with the Lord. All right, and Mark has, our, Mark the Builder, has a really good illustration he wants to share with us. Hey, Dave, we're not going to take a break. Let's just, if you want to, in the next couple of minutes, stand up, stretch your legs. But we're going to jump right into this next portion of our time. I get used to it. First page of my handout, you'll see there a, a very helpful tool. And some of you, many of you, may already be familiar with what's known as the bridge illustration. And I've included a version of it here um, for your um, benefit, something that you can refer to and use if you like that. But the idea is here with the bridge illustration to take this and make it something that is our own. Holding, of course, to the absolute truth of Scripture, but to use it in a way that is conversational and allows us to share the gospel. And so that's the idea, is to take this as a tool and use it in a couple of ways. And so flip your page there, and you'll see that what I've indicated is that we can use the bridge illustration in a couple of ways. One, I use it for myself. It's a tool for me because the idea of that is what God's given me as a gift of salvation. I want to preach that gospel to myself every day. I want to be mindful and reminded of that goodness and gift from God every single day. And this is a way for me visually in my head before I even get out of bed, before my head even gets off of the pillow, I can picture this illustration in my head and be reminded of what God's given me each and every day. So it works that way, but it also works, I think, in a second way in, a, in how we can then share that gift of salvation with others ourselves. And so it's a beautiful tool, like I said, that works in a couple of different ways. I want to do this, and I've given you a blank page there because what I think would be a good use of our time here for the next couple of minutes is to Follow along with me as I draw out the way I've kind of modified the bridge illustration in terms of how I think about it and how I share it with others. And so we've got God here on one side. Yay, God. And so what we know about God is, and we read it in the very first part of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, is that God created God created the heavens and the earth. 
God created the birds in the air, the fish in the sea, the animals on the land. And when he did all of that, each of those steps, what did he say about each one of those things? It is good. But then God also says in Genesis 1.27, let us create man in our own image. And so he did that. And forgive my lack of artistic skill, but there's man... And what did God say about that? It is very good. That drawing is horrible. (laughs) But God's creation of man is very good. That's his design. That's the way he wants things to be. Very good. But we got a problem. We got a big problem. Because... Something has created a division here between God's very good creation of man and himself. And we know that that um, thing that has separated us is sin. I'm going to throw a whole bunch of scripture out here, and I'm hoping as you're drawing and writing along that you can get all of this. If I go a little too fast, tell me, slow down, we'll get it all. But we learn from God's word, Isaiah 59 tells us very clearly that your sin has separated you from a holy God. That's a problem. That ain't the end of it, though, either. Because that problem's even worse than than just that. Because what Paul tells us, and what um, Sean was just pointing out a while ago, too, in Romans 3... 23, there ain't a one of us that's free from that separation. All have sinned. That's every one of us. That's not the end of it either because Paul goes on to tell us in Romans 6.23 that what we earn by that sin, the wages of our sin, is death. That still ain't the worst of it. Because what the writer of Hebrews then goes on to tell us too, Hebrews 9.27, is that not only are we appointed to death, but after that death, we're going to face a judgment. We're going to have to give an account for that life of sin that we've lived in rebellion to a holy God. That's a bad place to be. But God in his goodness... It ain't done, because what he tells us, and this is through Jesus Christ himself sharing it with us, in John 5, 24, Jesus tells us this, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, And will not be condemned. So no condemnation. But what's provided there is the ability to cross over from death to life. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. But two things happened there. Um, 
that Jesus is telling us. A couple of things that, that we do there in order for that to happen. And what are those two things? I tell you the truth, whoever... hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. But how does that hearing and that believing happen? We can't do that on our own. We attempt to do that on our own. But you understand, folks, that the thing that separates Christian faith from any other faith out there is this. We don't try to work our way to God. God came to us. Do you get that? That'll blow your mind. God stepped into this world. Read Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and recognize that. Man, what an amazing gift. A holy God that we can't even fully comprehend stepped into a broken world. Why? In order to get love? Absolutely not. He doesn't need our love. He lived here. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally, in relationship of love, perfect love. He doesn't need our love. He wants to give us love. Man, that'll blow your mind. And so what did he do? He provided a means by which we might get there. But what do we try to do with that? Again, we try to make it our own way. Go to church. I'm a good person. You going to go to heaven when you die? Well, yeah, you know, I didn't kill anybody. I love my wife. I do a bunch of good stuff. I give to charity. But God tells us all of those things. You're looking in the wrong direction. You know the Johnny Lee song from Urban Cowboy? Looking for love in all the wrong places. It ain't getting you there, folks. And that's the idea. All of those things we do... God's word tells us in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. This is the free gift of God, not by works, not by going to church, not by loving my wife, and I love my wife. I go to church. I give to charity. I do all those things. But those things aren't the the, the things that, that... earn me eternal life they have not justified me and so what is it then that has salvation Salvation through Jesus Christ alone absolutely and so I know we're repeating some of the verses we've covered here but I go to 1st John 5 11 through 13 this is the testimony God has given us eternal life life is in his son he who has the son has eternal life He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. He wants us to be confident in that. And there's so many other passages I go to here. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ died for sins once for all. One, One and done. It's finished. He tells us that on the cross. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you, me, you, all of us, to God. That's how we get there. 
We hear and believe in that absolute truth. I love it. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, I was over here bebopping around thinking I knew up from down and I didn't know jack. Living like a wretch, Christ came and died for me. Even knowing the way I was going to be living my life over here. The way you were going to be living your life. He demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's an amazing truth. And then the other one I add here is John 14, 6. Because what I love about this is the exclusivity of Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And so you'll hear folks out there saying, well, you know, I think this is one way of getting there, but there's a lot of good people out there, and I think, you know, ultimately they'll get to heaven. Jesus didn't work in that economy. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Absolute truth. So I'll leave that there with you folks um, as a a way of of looking at what God's done for us. But here's the, the clincher, the fourth part of it. We can know that intellectually, but we've got to receive that, not just in our minds, but in our hearts. And so what God tells us further, Jesus says in John 1.12, that he who would receive this truth would, be, would, would obtain that free gift of his salvation. And so we think of it as a gift God gives us freely. We can't earn it, but we receive it, and we take it to heart. And so I would point you then to the next page of our handout, and we're going to cover this pretty quickly because we're getting a little pressed on time. But the idea then would be, all right, I'm here. I'm a 10. I believe it. I've trusted in God. I've received his gift. Now what? We want to think through some of the ideas of, okay, well, what should my life look like? There's a distinction here, and we've touched on it, and I want to, I want to um, impress it just a little bit more, between the idea of justification and sanctification. Justification is what's happened here. I've been freed from the penalty of sin. That's a simple way to define justification, freedom from the penalty of sin. But then when we think about, okay, well, now what? Now how am I living my life? Am I growing in Christ, sanctified in him? I'm being sanctified in Christ as I'm growing by the power of his spirit now living within me. I'm being freed from the power of sin. That's a definition of sanctification. And then ultimately where that leads, because I know that I will be with him when I die fully glorified in him and his perfection, I've been freed from the presence of sin. So justification, freed from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, freed from the power of sin, being freed from the power of sin. And then glorification, freed from the presence of sin. It's a beautiful gift. And so, again, back, um, like I was saying, this, this next page, I just love this excerpt from John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress. Because I think it's a good illustration, example of what it looks like 
if we were to ask ourselves, how can I really know? How can I really know if I've been saved? Hopefully, by the power of the Holy Spirit working within me, I'm convinced that John, that 1 John 5, 11 through 13 just gives me so much um, encouragement to know. But I'm going to read this excerpt from Bunyan's book because I think it's so great. A true work of grace at work in the heart is evident to the person himself as well as it is to the people around him. Hey, ask folks around you. It's the idea of accountability and community and having folks speak in truth into my life. But, but let me go ahead and read this. To the one who has it, it brings conviction of sin, especially the defilement of his new nature and the sin of unbelief for which he would be damned if it weren't for the mercy at God's hand by faith in Jesus Christ. This perspective and sense of these things work in him a sorrow and shame for sin. Plus, he finds the Savior of the world revealed in him along with the absolute necessity of living for and with him to the end of his life. Through this, he discovers a hunger and thirst for him who has made the promise. Now, according to the strength or weakness of his faith in his Savior, so is the joy and peace he experiences. And so is his love of holiness, his desire to know him more and also to serve him in this world. You see that? It's kind of two sides of the same coin. I've got a sorrow and a shame for the way I was living my life before, for that sin that so dominated my life before, the sin that still I struggle with now at times. But at the same time, I've got a joy and a peace. And I'll show you, you know, a real-world example of that. We had a family member pass away this past week. And so that's, that's a tough thing. I mean, but death is a reality. But at the same time, you know, I look to a passage, for example, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. And that anxiousness that I might be prone to feel in those moments. When you see family members around you upset and crying and hurting. And it's real. That hurt's real. But at the same time, there's a peace. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. 1 Thess 5, 16 through 18, another passage. Rejoice always. Give, pray, in all, pray, in all, pray without ceasing, sorry. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God wants us to know that. He wants us to know that peace and that joy. And that's a beautiful gift that we have. The world around us can't understand that. The world around us looks at us and says, what's up with that guy? He's had a family member who died this week, and he's rejoicing in Christ. Hallelujah, amen, I am. Because what I know is the security there that we have in Christ Jesus, that this is not the end. There's a loss. We miss that person who dies. But this is not the end. Man, I'm secure in that. I've got a peace and a hope in that. And so um, flip over again. I'm going to jump ahead. We're going to look at this photo that I placed there. And I called this perspective because um, 
one thing about me is when I talk about that perspective and having that hope and that peace and that joy, um, sometimes it doesn't always translate well when I'm watching sports. <laughs> My family will tell you that. I like to yell at the TV. The dogs run and hide. <laughs> But the reason why I put this photo on here, does anybody even know what this photo is? A couple of you. This is Baylor team photo from this past season. And the thing that I would point out to you here are the two guys in front, number 61 and number 58. 61-58. Now you may or may not know what that represents, but it's kind of Baylor's shot at TCU given the score of the Baylor-TCU game from the 2014 season, the previous year. And you're like, well, what does that have to do with anything? Here's the deal. I didn't get to watch the game live. I recorded it. And so I didn't know what was happening um, as, as it was playing out. But before I got to watch the recording, I found out Baylor had won. So I knew the outcome. I knew the end result, where this was going. I knew that the victory had been had. And so now when I go back and I watch the game, and I see with 11 minutes to go in the fourth quarter, Baylor's quarterback, Bryce Petty, throws an interception. TCU runs it back for a touchdown. Baylor's down 21 points with 11 minutes to go in the game. And I'm not yelling at the TV. And the dogs don't have to run and hide. They're like, the dogs are probably like, well, what's up? (laughs) It's because I know what the final outcome is. I know that the victory's been had. I don't like that Petty throws an interception and and TCU runs it back for a touchdown. That's bad. It's bad for me as a Baylor fan. But it doesn't consume me. I still have a peace about me. I'm not yelling at the TV because I know... I have a confidence in the final outcome. I know this is where it's going. So perspective. I love the Billy Graham quote that I put on there, just beneath the photo. I've read the last page of the Bible, and it's all going to turn out all right. Family member dies. Baylor throws an interception down 21 in the fourth. But I know the final outcome. It's all going to be all right. And so, um, before we get out of here, one thing I'd like to do is a quick little um, role-playing exercise here. And so, I've asked a a few of y'all to help me out with this. But the idea of this works this way. This is a gift. This is a gift that has cost me everything. I've emptied my bank account. I've drained my 401k. I've sold all my possessions. I've done everything that I could do to provide this gift. I've given my life so that I could provide this gift. And so I present it there with outstretched arms as far as I can go. But the thing is, it's got to be received. There's no way you can earn it, but the gift is there and waiting for you to receive it. And so Cindy takes the gift, and she pulls it to her heart, and she receives it, and she knows what that gift is.
But it's not just my allowing her to receive this gift. There is a greater power that I call forth. God's Spirit. Joey's going to help us with that. And so you check this guy out. Look at those. Look, look at those guns. And Joey is going to seal that gift that Cindy has freely received. And so he cups her hands. That gift she's received is sealed tight. But we've got an enemy, a very real enemy, who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. And Jesus tells us that too, and we're warned of that. But that enemy is very deceptive. It's that enemy that created this situation right here to begin with. And so we're called to be on the alert because that enemy who comes to, to kill, steal, and destroy is oftentimes disguised as an angel of light. Something very beautiful. And so, Melanie, will you come help us out? Beautiful Melanie. She would attempt to steal and destroy this gift. You think she's getting past Joey? She could try. You think she's going to remove that gift that's been sealed in Cindy's hands? Ain't going to happen. Thank you, Melanie. But that's the idea that I want you to be thinking through as you, you think about how we are sealed with this guarantee, as we're told there in Ephesians 1, 13, 14. Nothing's going to undo that. The Holy Spirit has sealed that. Cindy, try to, to remove that gift from your hands yourself. Ain't going to happen. <laughs> and so the idea there, too, is that we ourselves can't even undo this amazing gift that's been sealed in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. You get that? Thanks, y'all. Appreciate it. Thank you, Joey. And so flip over to the last page. What I'd like for you to do as we close out our time here is to consider this. And we've talked about this passage already from Romans 8. But here's what I'd like for us to do is to spend about five minutes. I'm not even sure how much time we've got remaining. Negative four. Uh-oh. Spend a couple of minutes here if you can, please, if, if you don't have to get out of here right away. But I'd like for you to reflect on this passage. Read through it. Highlight some key words. Circle them things that God would impress on you from this passage, and then rewrite it in your own words. And so as a, as a means of meditating over this passage, just a way of, of what that looks like practically speaking. So send, spend about two minutes doing that, and then we'll talk about it. Okay, so let's go ahead um, because we are tight on time. Who's got a, a thought or two here that you'd like to share? Yeah, and so what impresses you about that? Nothing, absolutely nothing that can separate us. That 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 pretty much settles it, doesn't it? Nothing at all can separate us. Yeah. 
no matter what Satan does, we cannot be separated from the love of God. John 10, 27, and 28 speaks to that as well. Just another passage that, uh, that relates to this, this from Romans, and that's Jesus himself telling us. And so what I'd like for you to do then is to, to take what we've talked about here today as we close out and consider further, again, that diagnostic question that Derek presented at the very beginning of our time. Do you know absolutely? Because God's truth is absolute. And he wants us to know that confidently. And consider where you are. And if you've got continuing questions about this, if there are things that we've, we've um, because of time, not been able to touch upon here and you'd like to talk further about it, we'd love to do that. Please share that with us. I've put our contact information here at the bottom of this last page of my handout. My name is Mark. I've been around Watermark for about nine years, leading and directing in our discipleship ministry, Equip Disciple. I'm also a part of our men's Bible study through Summit on the equipping team as a resident. And so I love having conversations like this. I'd love um, tough questions because I like to wrestle through them myself. It keeps us sharp, and it keeps us true to God's Word. And that's where we go with those questions. We've got a ministry here on Monday nights called Great Questions. And so if you've got some really tough questions you're wrestling with and you don't feel like something here today at training day addresses that, that's another option for you to consider. So I'm really glad that we've uh, had the group of folks here. It was certainly um, predestined of God before the foundations of the earth. He had decided we would all be here together with one another this morning. And so what a great time. What a blessing. Thank you all for being here. Let me pray and, and we'll take off. So, Father, it is uh, just a wonderful blessing that uh, you give us opportunity like this to come together to talk about um, the amazing truth of your free gift of grace, of salvation, Lord, that we have in you. So thank you for that amazing gift of grace, of love, of forgiveness, of eternal life, and the confidence, Lord, that you tell us we can have in that what you've done for us, not of ourselves, but solely by what you've done for us. So we love you. We thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.